following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Please join me in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we acknowledge to you that apart from you, we can do nothing. And that is just as true of hearing and expounding your word as anything else. So we pray that your spirit would do his gracious work now. Uh, We pray that uh, you would open our ears, all of us, to hear your word. And that along with open ears, you would also give us minds that understand what you're saying to us. Uh, that you give us hearts that love your truth and wills that obey it. And Father, we cast ourselves now in dependence on you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? When asked that question, usually the first thing we say is our name. And when pressed further, the next thing most people, at least in this culture, say is their occupation. Hence, if someone comes up to me and says, who are you? I say, well, my name is Aim Pratt. Well, but who are you? Well, I'm, I'm responsible for training at the International Mission Board. Yes, but who are you? What goes beyond that? Where does your identity lie? Now, depending on the setting, I might then say in, in some circles, well, I am Catherine's husband, and that would then connect, peop- connect me in, in their minds. In other settings, I would say I'm Charlotte's dad or Greg's dad. Of course, one of my absolute favorite identities is that I am August and Julia's grandfather. But all of these are sort of part of what make up this whole issue of identity. In some settings, the answer to the question, who are you, is I'm an American. However, interestingly enough, much of the world answers this question very differently. If you were to go to some of the countries in which I have worked, on the visa application form, after your own name, the next question that asks is, who is your father? Because that is fundamentally who you are. And so I am Claude Pratt's son. Identity is a crucial issue in every culture and in every worldview. What makes you, you? Of all the things that characterize you, what is most important, both to you and to those who are around you? Now, part of that is, are you fundamentally an individual by yourself? Or is your fundamental identity as part of a group? What groups are you part of? How important is that? And when conflict arises, when push comes to shove, who do you side with? Now, we live in a culture that has gone through a dramatic shift in recent years. Traditionally, Americans have been very individualistic in their understanding of identity. Uh, Who I am is just who I am by myself. Now, identity politics has taken over in American culture. And so the society around us wants to identify us by race, gender, and sexual orientation, as though those were the most important things about us. 
Well, the Bible speaks very clearly to this issue. It does not use the word identity anywhere, as some, have, uh, some friends of ours have pointed out recently. But the issue itself is firmly addressed because it's an issue that everyone needs to understand. This text addresses that identity issue heads on and then gives us the implication for our lives. And if I were to summarize this passage, I would say this. Our fundamental identity is that now we are children of God as an expression of his astonishing love and as a gift of his grace. And that identity leads us to the pursuit of holiness. So let's look at the text. The first thing we learn is that we are children of God and that that is an amazing thing. See how great is the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Uh, Pop American religion tends to think that all people, by virtue of being people, are the children of God. But the Bible thinks very differently. Those who are not in Christ, in fact, are children of the devil, according to Jesus in John 8, 44. Now, those who are not the children of God find their identity in a lot of things. As I said, in contemporary culture, in race, gender, and sexual orientation, um, in occupation, affluence, influence, status. For some, they find their identity in political affiliation. Hence, you are fundamentally a Democrat or Republican, fundamentally a conservative or a progressive. Now, in many parts of the world, ethnicity is actually the most important part of identity. One of the most shocking things that happened in my lifetime happened in the countries of Rwanda and Burundi in the 1990s. Those are countries in Central Africa. And war broke out between two ethnic groups. They are actually of the same racial stock, but they have a different people group identity, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And they slaughtered one another. A lot of people are aware of that. What a lot of people aren't aware of is that almost all of those who are killing the others were professing Christians. Professing Christians slaughtering other professing Christians because they were a different tribe. Identity was wrapped up far more in what is my tribe than who am I in Christ. So all of those are things that the children of the world have as, their, as the sources of their identity. But for us, all of those things have been superseded by our adoption as children of God. And that adoption has not come because we deserve it. It has not come because there's something about us that God just really liked and wanted to have on his team or around his table. It's because of astonishing love. You know, we read, for God so loved the world, loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And that same love is the so much love that he adopted us as his children. We are the children of God, not as a birthright, but as an astonishing gift of loving grace. Now, this language of God having a people who are also his kids, his, his children, goes back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, 16, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And when you realize, even in Isaiah, what an astonishing view of the holiness, the exalted glory of God there is, to call that God father, that's pretty daring. But it's, a, it's an indication of the kind of God that he is and the way he relates to his people. Jeremiah 31, 9, I am Israel's father, 
And Ephraim is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31.20, is not Ephraim my dear son? And then we read earlier, Sebastian read for us, Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that leads us directly to the one who God most properly and rightly called his son, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you remember, if this struck a, a chord in your brain, Matthew uses this verse to talk about Jesus when his parents brought him back from Egypt after their exile there when they fled the wrath of Herod. And there was a time when I was a kid when I used to look at that and go, okay, Matthew, you're really reaching. That isn't talking about Jesus, it's talking about Israel. Then I realized, well, duh. You see, Egypt, I mean, Israel was God's child, but it was a child that did not live up to that calling. But the ultimate expression of what Israel was supposed to be, you might even say the true Israel was our Lord Jesus, who was the true child of God, not by adoption, the true begotten son of God who fully expressed what a child of God is supposed to be like. And so you notice the progression through the Bible. Uh, Luke tells us that Adam was the son of God, but he didn't live up to that status. Israel was God's son, but also failed in that calling. Jesus was and is God's eternal son, and he succeeded perfectly in that mission. And now we who are in Christ have been adopted as his sons and daughters. And so you see the language, and it's, it's, it's no mistake. The language John uses, behold, see how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. It is amazing. And if we're not amazed by it, we really haven't grasped it yet. We are by nature the enemies of God. We deserve condemnation for our rebellion against him. We deserve to be cast away from him, not brought near to him. But God has done the unthinkable. God has taken wretched rebels and adopted us as his sons and daughters. The status is the last thing that we deserve, which is why John finds it so amazing. And think about what it means. It means that we have a relationship with God that is familial and not servile. It means that we carry the family name. We have a seat at the family table. We share in the family inheritance. We are adopted brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, such that our Savior is also our elder brother. And that is what we are. It's interesting how he feels the need to, to sort of emphasize it. You know, see what great love it is that we should be called the children of God. And that's actually what we are. I mean, it's not just something we're called. It's not just a courtesy or a title. It is our fundamental identity now that we are the children of God. And the implications of this are astonishing. It means now that we have an intimacy with God that goes beyond that merely of creature, certainly that goes beyond that of slave and is that of sons and daughters. In, in Islam, the religious community in which we have spent much of our adult lives, the highest you can attain to is Abdullah, the slave of God. We are not slaves, brothers and sisters. We are sons and daughters. It also means that this is now our most important identity outranking all others. And it's a gift of grace, not something we've inherited or earned. And this identity is secure. Servants can be fired. Children are in the family permanently. One of the most uh, helpful 
pictures that I ever saw of what it meant for God to have parental love toward us was to observe my own mom. My, my dad died when I was, when I was uh, 13. My sister rebelled against God for a couple of decades and just hurt mom over and over and over again. And I saw my mom, my human mom, never give up on her, never walk away from her. And I remember thinking, if my mom, who is a sinful creature like me, has that kind of persistent, undying love, what is the Father's love toward me, he who is infinite and perfect? Now, one of the immediate applications for us is that this should humble those who have human pride reasons for pride think about paul in philippians 3 he gives his whole list of credentials his identity the things that he wrapped up his sense of self-worth in and then say that's just rubbish compared to my relationship with god in jesus christ but it also then exalts those who were despised by worldly standards. Whatever has been true about you in the eyes of the world ultimately does not matter if through faith in Jesus you have been adopted as a child of the King of Kings. This also sets us free from the bondage of worldly opinion. It ultimately doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're powerful or powerless, if you're successful or not, smart or not, athletic or not, physically beautiful or not, you are a child of God by his grace alone, and that matters infinitely more than any of the things that the world counts as significant. That is your ultimate identity. This also has to do in a profound way with our sense of loyalty. Our fundamental vertical loyalty is to God, our Father, and our fundamental horizontal loyalty is to our new family in him. And that means then that I have a deeper connection, a stronger sense of being family with and loyal to other believers who are of other races or nationalities than I do to my own unbelieving kin. And that means that I can go halfway around the world and be around brothers and sisters who do not look like me, sound like me, live like me, but in Christ there is instant family there, and my connection with them is deeper than my connection with my fellow citizens in this city or country. The early Christians actually had a notion of themselves as something totally unique. Uh, traditionally in those days, they thought of the world being divided into two races. There was Jew and Gentile. The Christians called themselves a third race. It's like, when I have become a Christian, I have ceased to be a Jew or a Gentile. I'm now something new, and that is my fundamental identity in relationship to the world. So that's who we are now, by amazing fatherly love and astonishing grace. We, those who belong to Jesus, have not simply had our sins forgiven and not simply had the guarantee of eternal life. We have been adopted into an intimate family relationship as sons and daughters of the living God. Now, John goes on to point out that that means that you are going to be a complete enigma to the world. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world tries to pin us down in its own categories, and we don't fit. It wants to put us, as it were, on a spectrum somewhere between left and right, and we're actually like here, just off the spectrum completely. Their spectrum is irrelevant to us, in fact. We are something new and different, and that means that we are 
just not understandable to the world around us. Now, it's hard to be a minority. One of the things that I appreciate about the calling God has placed on our lives is that we have spent a fair bit of our adult lives in a place where we were a minority. And it's very different being a minority than it is being the majority in a given setting. It's especially hard when you're a minority that looks like most of the people around you, and so the minority status is in the way you think, is in the way you process life, is in in your worldview and position toward reality. You begin to think that you must be crazy. I mean, everyone else thinks somewhere on the spectrum, and you don't. And when the world is bombarding you with its input, saying, this is the way you're to understand stuff, somewhere here, and you're up here, then you just think, okay, am I nuts? Are they right? I mean, everybody around me thinks this way. Am I just totally off base to think that way? Well, what John is telling us here is don't worry about it. This is why they don't get you. It's not because you're crazy. It's because they don't get him. They don't know him. They don't understand him. If they did, they would understand you. You aren't crazy. Actually, they are. If crazy is defined as out of step with reality, ultimate reality and eternal reality is found in Jesus. And you are being made more and more like that. If they genuinely knew Jesus, you would make sense to them. If you knew the family, you'd understand the kids. Uh, Some of you are aware that a couple of weeks back, our son had just come back from uh, his journeyman term overseas, and his now fiance was was with him in our house. And I heard her say once, okay, Greg's starting to make sense. (laughs) Just being around us, especially, I admit it, being around me, (laughs) Greg begins to make sense. You know the dad, the son starts being... Uh, The picture is is clearer. And that's the way it is with us and our relationship to God. Since they don't know him, you don't make sense to them at all. Don't let it bother you. In fact, it should bother us if we made complete sense to the unbelieving world. So God has had astonishing love toward us that has resulted in our adoption as his children, that has put us out of step with the world so that we don't make sense to the world. And he then goes on to say, and your destiny in all of this is to look like Jesus. Families look alike. Again, those of you who know my son know there is no mistaking that he's my kid. I mean, he is me 38 years younger, Um, even now down to the shaved head and the beard. And my beard used to be red, for those of you who don't know. Um, you know it. You listen to his voice. You, you watch him walk. You, all of it just reminds you, you of me when you look at him. And that's the way it is with the children of God. Now, admittedly, we are adopted kids, but our destiny is to conform more and more to the family image. And this, once again, is a major theme of the Bible. Remember that we were created in the image of God, which means at its basic level that we were created to reflect the character of God and to represent his rule on earth. Now, we defaced the image of God in our fall into sin. As God's son, then, Israel was supposed to look like God to the world, but it failed. But Jesus was the perfect image of the invisible God. Looking at him, we not only perfectly see what God is like. So if you've known him, you've known the Father. 
But looking at him also is exactly what we're supposed to look like. As those created in God's image, God himself in human flesh is the perfect model to us of human life as God intended it. And we are now in the process, according to Romans 8.29, of being conformed to his image. That's what discipleship is at its root. Discipleship is growing to be more and more like Jesus in intimacy with Jesus. And what we're promised here is that when we're with him face to face, the process will be complete. Now, John points out that we don't fully understand what that's going to look like. Um, And I might add that John's humility at this point is a really helpful example to us. There's a lot about the end of time and our final state that our minds can't quite take in just yet. And if the beloved apostle feels that way, then we should have a little bit of modesty in our own um, detail of what it's going to be like. But this we know for sure. The process of sanctification, the process of growing to be more and more like God, the process of growing in holiness, will one day reach completion. I was made to reflect the character of God. I messed everything up by my sin. Now, however, he is remaking me to reflect his character. And the day will come in which I will do so perfectly. Even now, though, Just as people see Greg and think of me, people should see us and think of Christ. Because we should have that kind of family resemblance to the world. Now John concludes this by saying, everyone who has this hope in him, that is in Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. John describes this as hope. This understanding that we will one day be exactly like him is a source of tremendous hope to us. When we grasp our identity in him, when our life purpose has been transformed such that now we no longer live for ourselves, we no longer live for the American dream, we now live for him and for his glory and not for ourselves, when, when that shapes our understanding of who we are, and yet we still see sin gnawing at us, this is a lifeline of hope. One day I'll be like him. One day I will see my sin dead at my feet, and I will never have to deal with it again. And it's hard to imagine greater joy than that. Um, those of us who once were young and now are old, and have been walking with the Lord for decades, can tell you that the struggle with sin is a struggle to the day you die. And there are times, frankly, brothers and sisters, when it gets discouraging. There are times when you think, I should be beyond this. I know better. I've known better for longer than a lot of people have been alive. And yet I still find that struggle with sin in me. But the day will come when that won't happen anymore. One day... I will display the fruit of the Spirit perfectly. And that gives me courage and hope to press on in putting off the deeds of the flesh and putting on the character of Christ. As we continue in the Christian life year after year, decade after decade, getting discouraged to see sin still present in our lives, if we don't see an end to the struggle, any hope of success, it can be easy to give up. But we have hope. We will be like him. And just as anyone who has ever been a runner knows that when you round that last corner 
and you see the finish line, you speed up just instinctively. It's like, okay, I can make it. And I've got some left and I'm going to give it my all. So knowing the end, knowing what God has for us encourages us, spurs us on in our pursuit of holiness. Our fight with sin will end in victory. We will be like him. And that means then that the promise that our identity as children of God is leading us to the likeness of God being fully reproduced in us gives us hope and encouragement that spurs us on, that makes us persevere in the pursuit of purity. The result of knowing that my relationship with God is secure, my, the result of my knowing that the day will come when I will be perfectly like him should not produce at all any complacency toward sin or any complacency toward growth in Christ. It should spur us on in the pursuit of holiness. So, so who are you? If you're in Christ, you're a child of the living God through faith in Jesus. And this outranks anything else that could be said about you. It outranks any other source of identity. And for this reason, the world will never understand you. Don't expect them to, and don't be discouraged when they don't. Your destiny as a child of God is to take on the family image. You will be like Jesus, and this hope motivates the pursuit of holiness. We don't give up because we know the process will succeed. Now, if you're not a believer, then none of this is likely to make any sense to you because you don't know him. And so for any in this room who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just briefly state the good news of the gospel as clearly as I can. What we are talking about here is that there is a God to whom all of us must give account. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the ruler of all things. He is the judge of all people. And he will judge us according to the standard of his own holiness. And according to that standard, every single one of us deserves condemnation because we're sinners. That means we're rebels. We have rebelled against God. And that rebellion can take any number of forms. It can take the form of a life of debauchery. It can also take the form of respectability, in which you assume that you can be good enough to make it before God without God. But the greatest commandment is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're defying that one, even if you don't so obviously and blatantly commit things that are sins in the eyes of the world. We all deserve condemnation. But God looked on us and astonishingly loved us and he loved us to the point that he became one of us in the person of Jesus to live the life we should have lived but didn't as our substitute and then to die the death we deserve to die in our place as our substitute bearing on himself the penalty that we deserve that the same Lord Jesus rose again from the dead victorious over sin and death and hell and he has now commanded all people everywhere to repent, that is to turn and believe, that is to trust. So we are to turn from our rebellion and trust in him and not in ourselves or any of our works or any of our accomplishments or any of our efforts in him and in him alone. And all those who do so not only have their sins forgiven, 
they are made new creatures in Christ. They are born again as a child of the living God and will enjoy fellowship with him forever. And so if you have never done that, I would urge you to speak to someone in this church. There's a lot of people here who would be very glad to talk with you about what that means and what that can mean in your life. But for everyone here who is a believer, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Where do you find your identity? What are things other than God that make up your sense of who you are? And have any of these become idols in your life? Number two, where is your loyalty? Do any group loyalties supersede your ultimate allegiance to God and to his family? Number three, does your understanding of your identity in Christ propel you to pursue purity? Are you striving with all of his strength, not your own, but are you striving with all of his strength to put sin to death and to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? The Christian life includes for all of us a call to seriousness about holiness. And holiness is not some sort of grim-faced thing that is no fun to be around. Holiness simply means conformity to the image of Jesus, which is utterly good and delightful. And then finally, are you astonished at the grace and love that has made you a child of God? It becomes easy for us to be complacent. And it becomes easy in our pride to think that somehow, it's just, well, of course I'm a child of God. I should be. And no, you shouldn't. Behold what astonishing manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Ultimately, this passage should lead us, yes, to identity in Him. It should lead us to the pursuit of holiness, but it should also always lead us to worship and to gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the love and the grace you have shown us in adopting us as your children. Father, we are amazed at the security that this gives us in our relationship with you. But I pray, Father, that we would take it seriously, that we would cherish this identity above all others, and that in light of it, we would pursue becoming more and more like you, and that you would give us a healthy sense of astonished gratitude over what you've done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.